Amen. Let's pray as we begin this morning. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So in my junior year of college, I lived apart from my two best friends for the first time. We were kind of spread out on, on campus, off campus, and so we decided that the best way for us to stay connected was to have an early breakfast one day a week. Uh, our favorite restaurant that we would go to frequently was in Minneapolis called Sunnyside Up Cafe. There it is on Lindale Avenue. Sadly, uh, it is no longer uh, in business. So rest in peace, uh, Sunnyside Up Cafe. You were good to us. Um, but I remember one cold January morning, uh, sub-zero temperatures. We rolled up right in front of the restaurant right when it opened at 6 o'clock in the morning. We could see lights on, but we, when we went to go open the door, it was locked. And so we waited in the car for about 10 minutes. And then my friend Tim uh, got a little bit impatient, and he's like, I'm just going to go. There's a light on. I'm going to go and see if I can get in the back. And so Paul and I watched from the car as Tim walked in the back door and was having a conversation with someone in the kitchen. And then we saw him come unlock the front door and uh, turn on the lights. And we walked in, and we sat down. And we were there for a couple minutes. And then Tim got impatient again and said, well, I'm just going to put in our order. I mean, the cooks are here. Why don't, why don't we, I'll just put in the order for us. And so he puts in an order with the kitchen, and uh, apparently there were no servers. They slept in or whatever that morning, and um, so he just put it in for us and then went over to the station, started making coffee, poured us water, um, and started serving us. And then another couple came to the front door, and he said, well, okay. So he went and hosted them and sat them down and (laughs) took their orders, and then another large group of, of of people came in, college students maybe came in, and he sat them down, and so all of a sudden he was waiting three tables and making coffee and um, didn't really know the menu and, and all that kind of stuff, but was doing it anyways. And then a waiter actually showed up, right? And I just remember this waiter showing up, a waitress showing up, and she said, hey, who, who are you? You don't even work here. Who even told you you could do this, right? Who, gave, who said that you could do this? And I remember the, uh, one of the cooks put his head out the pass-through window and said, well, he wouldn't have to do it if you would show up on time for once. (laughs) I don't think the waiter was really that concerned that Tim didn't know the menu or was doing a bad job or giving the restaurant a bad name, but more that he was probably taking away from her tips, right? So Tim was doing it because he thought it was funny, because he's a nice guy, uh, because mostly because we needed to eat if we wanted to make it back to school in time for morning classes. It's a silly story, but I couldn't help but think of it when I think about our text today in that question. Who gave you the authority to do this? Who gave you the authority to do this? In our text, Jesus and his disciples have now entered the city of Jerusalem. We are getting closer to Holy Week here. And for the next two Sundays, the focus of our preaching is going to be on the temple. Jesus' words and actions in the temple in Jerusalem. But before our passage today, which we're going to read in just a second... Jesus is in the temple courts, and he cleans out those temple courts of money changers, of those who are seeking to make profit off the temple sacrificial system. It's a dramatic scene. It leaves quite an impression on the religious leaders, not a very good impression upon them. And that's where our text picks up today. So would you stand for the reading of God's word, please, from Mark eleven twenty-seven through Mark 12, 12. Hear God's word to his church this morning. 
Again, they came to Jerusalem. As Jesus was walking in the temple, the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders came to him and said, By what authority are you doing these things? Who gave you authority to do them? And Jesus said to them, I will answer you one question. Or I will ask you one question. Answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Did the baptism of John come from heaven, or was it of human origin? Answer me. And they argued with one another. If we say from heaven, then he will say, why did you not believe him? But shall we say of human origin? They were afraid of the crowd, for all regarded John the Baptist as truly a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we don't know. And Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I'm doing these things. And then Jesus began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard, put a fence around it, dug a pit for the wine press, and built a watchtower. And then he leased it to tenants and went to another country. When the season came, he sent a slave to the tenants to collect from them his share of the produce of the vineyard. But they seized him, beat him, and sent him away empty-handed. And again, he sent another slave to them. This one they beat over the head and they insulted. Then he sent another, and that one they killed. And so it was with many others. Some they beat, others they killed. He he had still one other, a beloved son. And finally, he sent him to them saying, they will respect my son. But the tenant said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let's kill him. And then the inheritance will be ours. So they seized him, they killed him, and they threw him out of the vineyard. What then? will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read the scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is amazing in our eyes. When the leaders realized that he had told the parable against them, they wanted to arrest him. But they feared the crowd, so they left him and went away. The gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. You can have a seat. So this text, as you can pick up, up, is in two parts. Jesus' interactions with the Jewish leaders in the temple, and then a parable known as the parable of the wicked tenants. To understand these passages and our passage for next week as well, we need to understand the Jerusalem temple of the first century. That's the central focus of Jesus' words and actions here in many ways. This is what Herod's temple in the first century probably looked like in Jesus' day. You can see the courtyards there, and you can see the temple. It certainly does look like a grand building, doesn't it? And it really was. It was the most stunning building within many hundreds of miles in any direction. And we're going to dig much more into the actual temple next week. But the temple, in short, was a place where people came to worship, to pray, to make sacrifices, animal sacrifices, to atone for sins, and most of all, to experience the presence of God. That was its original intent, to be a house of the presence of God. And here, in this place, is where Jesus comes and he overturns the tables. He decries the selling of animals for profit. He calls the people a brood of vipers. He creates this huge scene in the courts of the very presence of God. 
No wonder the religious leaders were furious about this, right? The temple system had been operational for centuries. Even, even as the temple had been destroyed and rebuilt, that, that system had stayed intact. Who does this guy think he is? Where does he get authority to act in such a way and say such things in the very presence of God? So the chief priests ask the question. Not because they are earnestly seeking wisdom from Jesus, but because they're angry and they want his behavior to end. And so Jesus, as he so often does in the Gospel of Mark, he answers cryptically. We as the readers, if we've been paying attention to the story of Jesus, we get what Jesus is doing here. But the original audience of the chief priests, the elders, they are in the dark. So he answers with a question. Did the baptism of John, John the Baptist, come from heaven or was it of human origin? Since we've been paying attention as readers, we know that John's baptism is actually what confirmed Jesus and inaugurated him as the Messiah, confirmed him as God's own son. That baptism confirms that he's the rightful king, that he's the only true high priest, the mediating presence between a people and God, the one with authority, even over this institution that was seen as the house of the very presence of God. But the chief priests and the elders, they couldn't say that. That would undo way too much of their lives, right? On the other hand, if they say John's baptism was merely human in form, there wasn't anything divine about it, the crowd would have turned on them. So they were more fearful of the, of the reaction of the crowd than responding honestly to Jesus. It's a true master stroke of rhetoric by Jesus here, by the way, just absolutely brilliant. Despite the fact that Jesus is the very presence of God and has clearly exhibited that throughout his ministry so far, the very Messiah that they have been praying for and anticipating in that temple for over a thousand years, they couldn't accept his authority over them. So Jesus follows it up with a parable, again, known as the parable of the wicked tenants. In case you were kind of losing the story here, a man owns a vineyard, leases it to a tenant, sends a slave after some time to collect his portion of the produce, which was the local economy of that, of that vineyard. But the tenant, instead, he beats the slaves, gives him nothing. He sends another slave. That one's beaten as well. Then he sends another one who's killed. And this happens to many others. So the owner says, I'll send my son, a my own representative, my son. He'll have to respect my son. But the son is seized and killed and discarded outside the vineyard. Then Jesus says, what, am I, what, what is the owner supposed to do with this situation? He's going to go himself to the vineyard. He's going to destroy the tenant and give it to others who will obey him. The meaning of the parable is much debated. There's lots and lots of ink spilt on this parable. But if we keep the previous passage about the reality of the temple in mind, the interpretation becomes pretty clear. The people of Israel, God's own people, are the vineyard. Isaiah uses this analogy in his writings, the prophet Isaiah. And God has been sending messengers and prophets for centuries to the people of Israel, carriers of God's authoritative word, what God wants to say to his people, and they have taken those prophets and driven them out, they've beaten them, they've even killed them. So God... The owner of the vineyard does what? Sends his own son who's going to be seized and killed 
and discarded outside of the city walls, by the way. But the end of this parable is that the owner will be vindicated. Jesus, in John chapter 2, in the shadow of this temple, says to the authorities, destroy this temple and I will rebuild it in three days. And the leaders don't get it because this is Herod's temple. It took 46 years to build this temple. And even at the time of Jesus, it was still being renovated. How could Jesus accomplish this in three days? Well, as John notes, Jesus isn't talking about this temple. He's talking about the temple of his body, the very presence of God. Jesus, through his eventual death and resurrection, will take on this temple in his body. It will become the place of ultimate sacrifice for sin, the place of cleansing blood, the place of the holy of holies, the place where the presence of God is found, not within walls, but within a person. We're going to talk about the destruction of this temple next week, but Jesus is claiming authority over all that this temple stands for. And he quotes Psalm 118 at the end of this parable. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was God's doing, and it is amazing in our eyes. So Jesus takes this text about the building of Solomon's temple, of a stone that completes the grand archway of the temple and applies it to himself. Just as the temple was a paragon of architectural perfection, so Jesus completes the presence of God. He's the cornerstone that completes the presence of God. He makes the whole mission and story of God fit. The stone that was rejected will actually become the cornerstone, the thing that completes the story of God and his people. And indeed, we can join in with that as we look at the life of Jesus and say, it is amazing in our eyes. What an amazing thing. That's the correct response to Jesus, who speaks with this kind of authority and magnitude in the shadow of that great temple. What a daring thing to do. But verse 12 of chapter 12 tells us that the chief priest and the elders do not join into that amazement. Instead of being amazed and afraid at who Jesus is and his authority over them, they are afraid of how the crowd might react. And so they walk away from Jesus rather than accept him or arrest him. Okay, so that was a lot. Are we awake? Are we here? That text in two parts. Jesus' response to the chief priests and then the parable of the wicked tenants. It's very involved. There's a lot of context going on here. But I think it's, it's important for us to walk through that carefully because it lays the groundwork so that we can allow Jesus to speak beyond the, media, the immediate context of the first century in the shadow of that temple to here today for us. And I consider myself amazed at how this text is speaking to me, to our church, to our community, to our world in this particular time. Here's the main question that this text demands that we ask. Who or what is the voice of authority in your life? Who or what is the voice of authority in your life? Now, I ask this question knowing full well that we live in a culture that is allergic to the idea of authority. Numerous studies indicate that suspicion of authority is at an all-time high and confidence in authority structures and institutions and the people who lead them are at an all-time high low. The word authority has become negative because we see in the news and elsewhere this cascade of abuse of power that we see at most levels of of leadership. But I want to talk about the authority in a biblical sense. Pastor Simon 
began this sermon series back in January by defining the biblical word for authority. That word is exousia, exousia, which means to have command over something or exousia flowing out of someone's being or character or presence. And he even brought this super handy definition from our English word, which I think is helpful by parsing it out. The, ro- the root word of authority, auteur, is where we get the word author, right? Author. So in the biblical sense, authority is less of a power issue, and it's more of an issue of moral influence. In other words, what voice in your life is telling you who you are, how you're supposed to live, and what you're supposed to value? And hear me clearly, you cannot sit here this morning and deny having an authority that's morally influencing you. It's not possible. It is happening in your life, whether you want it to or not. Every person has voices or a voice of authority in their life. My question is, can you name that voice of authority, and is it a good voice for you? Can you recognize that commercialism and mass media are vying for this role of authority so that they can unleash their powerful tools of marketing that are engineered to tell you what you need so that you can live this supposedly better life? Can you recognize the ways in which cable news and media in general generate and sustain fears in in order to motivate our habits and affections in certain directions? Can we recognize the ways that our social circles and, 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 and social networks can model and value behavior for us that can become dangerously unmoored and shape our own values and behavior so easily? Can we recognize that the perfectly curated images and narratives of social media create in us narratives of dissatisfaction and disillusionment and how the undercurrent of social, political, and societal outrage on our social media feeds makes us want to rage in response? Can you recognize the simple seduction of being able to say, hey, I'm my own authority. I'm my own authority. I don't take moral advice or influence from anybody else. Other than myself, can we recognize how this rugged determinism is actually an authority in and of itself, albeit one that is grounded in nothing and is liable to cave in on itself as soon as life gets out of control? I could go on here. (laughs) But you have given authority to a voice or various voices in your life, which leads to the next question. Is that voice of authority a worthy voice? Does it deserve the place of prominence that you've given to it? Another way to frame this question, do I trust that this authority that's speaking into my life knows me, loves me, and has only my best interests in mind? If we're going by that definition, we know that cable news and Facebook and mass media, many of our beloved institutions are out immediately when we ask those questions. I don't think it's a fair burden as we think about our social circles and networks to place that upon them. I certainly don't think that striving for self-autonomy and self-authority fits that description either. But man, Jesus does. Jesus does. When we consider Jesus as our authority, we are affirming the very word that we trust him as the author of our story. Who better to form our values and affections, and behaviors than the person who's writing the story. He's the very presence of the Almighty God, creator of all things. He is the only voice of authority that is a worthy one. 
which leads to another question. How will I know if I'm living with Jesus as my authority? How will I know if I'm living with Jesus as my authority? Well, if we're taking seriously our text from today, there are two things. If Jesus is our authority, first he's going to upset and unmask unworthy voices of authority in our lives. And second, we're going to dearly desire to actively listen to him and to obey. Jesus, what does he do? He upsets the voice of the institution of the temple when he overturns the tables, and he unmasks that authority as one that was more focused on profit, on exploitation, than on celebrating the presence of God. If we have given Jesus authority in our lives, we're going to recognize that he is going to do the same thing for us. As we learn to trust him, he's going to reveal the mixed motives and the blatant sins of the social media feed or the advertisements or the friends that we have that are not honoring to him or the ideologies that grieve his heart or perhaps most of all the self-determination that we're committed to. Jesus does not split his authority with the authorities of this world. So he's going to upset and unmask those for what they are in our lives. And then he's going to give us opportunities to actively listen to him. Remember the parable of the wicked tenants. The owner sent messenger after messenger to do his work, to collect, right? If we're giving Jesus authority in our lives, we're going to receive those messengers, and we're going to want to actually listen to them instead of beat them and send them away. The prophets, those messengers that God sent over and over to Israel, they had tough things to say. Go read them. Things like, you have to repent for your sin. Things like your priorities are way out of whack and they, and they lead down paths of destruction. Things like return to God's design for your life rather than curating your own authorities. The chief priests, they were unable to hear anything that came against the temple system that they were in. But if Jesus is our authority, we'll be actively listening and seeking to respond to him. Which leads to the last question. How do I listen to Jesus so that I can then respond to Jesus as my authority? Three fundamental ways. They're up on the screen for you. Ways that, we'll, that we can actively listen to what Jesus has to say. Scripture, silence, and the church. I'm increasingly convinced that we cannot have any chance of hearing what Jesus wants to say to us if we're not steeped in Scripture. It's been such a gift to read through the Gospel of Mark in this Lenten season through the Bible app. What that models for us is, is being in Scripture every day and taking time to listen to what Jesus has to say. Paul calls Scripture God-breathed, meaning that God breathes his life-giving power and authority through his word. This is the clearest and most sure way to hear what Jesus has to say to you. And the second is silence. You might have said, wow, I thought it would be prayer. Before prayer comes silence. If there's anything that is in a premium, at a premium in our lives and in our world right now, it's silence. Silence is what ultimately leads us to prayer and gives us an opportunity to snuff out all of those unworthy voices of authority that are vying for our attention and for our hearts. I've been going through this massive book by Robert Cardinal Sarah called The, the Power of Silence. It might take me a year to read this book. That's how dense it is. But I, I have to share this quote for you. Just listen to this. 
Our world no longer hears God because it is constantly speaking at a devastating speed and volume in order to say nothing. Modern civilization doesn't know how to be quiet. It holds forth in an unending monologue. Postmodern society rejects the past and looks at the present as a cheap consumer object. Its dream, which has become a sad reality, will have been, will have been to lock silence away in a damp, dark dungeon. Thus, there is a dictatorship of speech, a dictatorship of verbal emphasis. In the theater of shadows, nothing is left but a purulent wound of mechanical words without perspective, without truth, and without foundation. From morning to evening, evening to morning, silence no longer has any place at all. The noise tries to prevent God himself from speaking. The tragedy of our world is never better summed up than in the fury of senseless noise that stubbornly hates silence. The, this age detests the things that silence brings to us, which are encounter, wonder, and kneeling before God. What are your personal practices of silence? If you don't have them, you're not going to be able to listen to Jesus. I'm just convinced of that. And I say this as one who's deeply convicted of the noise in my life. Last way to listen to Jesus is the church. Now, some of you might be thinking, wasn't Jesus speaking out against the temple? I mean, wasn't he dismantling the authority of that institution and instead placing it on himself? Well, I want to be very clear here. The, the temple in the Old Testament, and as it carries through into the time of Jesus, is not a corollary of the church of Jesus Christ. The Old Testament temple was as much a political locus of power as it was a place of worship. And, and I defend the church in this sense because I believe that it is the place where we can clearly catch a glimpse of the kind of authority that Jesus wants to have in our lives. It's the place where we are challenged. These are the people sitting around you here who journey with us and speak truth into our lives and encourage us. I give authority to, to Joy and to Simon and to, and to all of you as my brothers and sisters in Christ because I believe that you are representatives of Christ, of the kind of authority that he wants to have in my life. You are the messengers that God sends to me that I believe will help me listen to Jesus and make sure that I'm not missing him. The church is the new temple of Jesus, his hands and feet. So it's one of the chief ways that Jesus exerts his authority over me, the very best place for me to listen clearly to him. So I know that's a lot this morning, but in closing, what I want to do is I actually just want to give us a minute or two of silence as a gift to us. I want you to just bow your heads, if you would, close your eyes. As my friend and yours, Keith Bears, said, just imagine somebody is inside your brain sweeping out all of your thoughts, all of your concerns, all of your worries, so that that space is just clean. I want you to think about something in your life where you desire to hear Jesus speak. A circumstance in your life, maybe where you have not handed over authority to Jesus to say, you are Lord over this. I want to give you just a moment of silence to allow Jesus 
the one who has authority, the author of our stories, to speak to us. we've heard your word we've silenced our heart before you we are here in your church Lord we believe that when these three things come together that you are speaking in this moment Lord we give authority over to you we reject any other voice of authority in our lives for who we are, for what's most important to us, and for how we are supposed to live. Would you increase in our lives as the very presence of God? Would you continue to send messengers and would you find us receiving them rather than casting them out? We are willing to hear difficult words that you have to say to us, Lord, because you are the authority in our lives. And as we ponder you, Jesus Christ, as the presence of God, might we join with the psalmist and say, is this not amazing in our eyes? way in which you, through your love for us and your great sacrifice, complete the story of God, make it perfect, hold it all together. May we respond to you in amazement and a healthy fear for who you are and for what you've done. One last thing from our text today. And this is an amazing thing. It's its own sermon. I'm not going to preach the whole sermon right now. But Jesus doesn't want to just be our authority, but he wants to share his authority with us. Notice that it, it doesn't say that the owner of that vineyard stayed to micromanage it, right? No, the owner leased it out to a tenant. And Jesus does this with his disciples. He gives them authority to go and do as he does, to cast out demons, to do miracles, read the book of Acts, to follow completely in his way. When we give Jesus that kind of authority in our lives, he shares that authority with us to do 
that work that he has done. Like my friend Tim saying, I'll just, I'm just going to wait these tables. I've never done it before, but the cook gave me authority, so I'm going to go ahead and do that. Jesus gives us authority as well to be the very presence of God to those around us. May it be so. Let's sing our closing hymn together this morning. Hymn number 676, a benediction for us today.